And turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 6. I said last week that we'd be starting a series through the book of Isaiah, and there are a lot of you still here, so <laughs> it's a good sign. Um, was thanking the Lord for you with the elders a little bit earlier, thanking the Lord that you are such a hungry people for the Word of God. Uh, we've got nothing else to say apart from His Word, so we come to this amazing book. This morning is going to serve again like I did with 1 John as kind of an introduction. Um, was again reminded of Costco. Uh, this week Thatcher and I went to Costco, made a trip, and we got to go and enjoy the samples. And I think of these introductory messages as kind of like that. Oh, these beef taquitos are good. It'd be great if we had a lot more of them. Um, well, hopefully we'll feast on beef taquitos gluten-free um, <laughs> as we go through the book of Isaiah and that we enjoy the riches of it. But hopefully today will serve to kind of whet your appetite for this book. It's an amazing book that we know very little about. It's a large book that we actually know very little about. So I've entitled this introductory message, Let Isaiah Speak. Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah, because it is a good news book. It is a book about salvation. It is a book about rescue. It is a book about God's people finally being with Him forever in peace and joy. And that's good news. It's good news that we need every day. It's good news that our world needs. Isaiah the book is quoted or alluded to in the Gospels about 21 times, 25 times in Paul's letters, six times in 1 Peter, five times in Acts, four times in Revelation, once in Hebrews. The New Testament writers are familiar with Isaiah, and they're familiar with how the new covenant people of God, like us, need to benefit from Isaiah. The New Testament writers assume that Isaiah has a lot to say for us New Covenant believers, the New Covenant children of God, and yet we're so unfamiliar with the book. We're largely familiar with Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy. We're largely familiar with Isaiah 7 and 9, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're largely familiar with those because we hear those often around Christmas time in devotionals, in songs, in sermon series, and I praise the Lord for that. It's a great time for those to be taught. We're largely familiar with Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God. We have that come across our social media feeds, across our daily Bible reading schedule around Easter time, appropriately so. And even some of us are familiar with Isaiah 65, the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. But there's a lot more to Isaiah, and all of those realities fall into place in a storyline, in a, in a flow that the Holy Spirit has inspired. And so, I thank the Lord for the things that we do know about Isaiah, but I pray to the Lord that we would know a lot more and really see why He chose to communicate these truths in the length that He chose to communicate them. All 66 chapters, the chapter numbers themselves not divinely inspired, but the content is, all 66 chapters inspired by God, and we know a handful of them. We know some things about a handful of them. So, I make no apologies for going through 66 chapters of Isaiah. I have prayed for you a lot. I've been spending time with Isaiah since the summer, and every time I open up to study, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your endurance. I'm praying that as you go through passages that seem very heavy and dark for a number of weeks that you wouldn't grumble, but that you would see God placed this amount of content with this kind of darkness here for a reason. Lord, teach me. 
So already, I'm just introducing Isaiah. There have been hours of prayer put in for you, for us, for my own heart already. Such an important book. Again, it's called the fifth gospel. As I prayed earlier, it's one of the most important documents in all human history. The other 65 documents are in here also. (laughs) We need the book of Isaiah. This church needs the book of Isaiah. This church needs the book of Isaiah so that we can communicate the truths of the book of Isaiah in the world in which we're in, because the world needs the book of Isaiah. I don't know how many of you watch um, television news talk shows, Um, go through the difficult task of watching those television (laughs) news talk shows, but sometimes when world events happen, uh, they have a panel of experts that come on for a three-minute segment. This general is going to weigh in, this pastor is going to weigh in, this politician is going to weigh in, and usually it's people with ungodly agendas that have a certain expertise in some areas. But every now and then you get someone who really knows what they're talking about. You get maybe people that know the Scriptures, and they're going to be on this panel. And you'd wish that they would have hours to explain all that's going on in the Middle East, in America, here in this conflict in Africa, whatever it may be. You want them to speak into this. We want to listen to them. But you go through the television talk show, and, and they've got this panel, and they come to the person who actually has a biblical worldview and is able to say something, and they start talking. They say, well, here's why this is happening according to what God says. And, oh, thank you very much. That's enough time. We've got to move on to our commercial. And we're left wanting. I think sometimes that's how Isaiah is treated. Holy, holy, holy. A virgin will have a son. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The iniquities of us all will be laid on him. Behold, he's creating a new heavens and a new earth. Okay, thank you, Isaiah. That's all the time we have for today. Well, let's let Isaiah speak. Because when we let Isaiah speak, we're taking our hand off of the mouth of God as well. And God is speaking to us through his prophet. Every single one of Isaiah's words are divinely inspired, and they're so important for us today. So, we're going to go this morning through a bit of an introduction to Isaiah. We're going to look at who is Isaiah, what is Isaiah's purpose for writing, how does Isaiah lay out his prophecy, the structure is divinely inspired, that's important, and finally, how should we pray as we begin a study of Isaiah? So, we'll go through those points, okay? First, who is Isaiah? Well, Isaiah has a name that means something. Isaiah's name means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. The Lord saves. The Lord is salvation. Now, again, you read the book of Isaiah and there's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of discipline for God's people, judgment on the nations. There is idolatry. There are people despising God There's a lot of darkness in Isaiah, yet Isaiah's name is God is salvation. The Lord is salvation. This book is about God's amazing salvation. Now, if you're going to understand salvation rightly, whether it's Israel's, Judah's, the new covenant people of God, or even your own salvation, your own personal salvation, you have to go through and understand some dark things. Blessed are those who mourn. There is a mourning over sin. There is a being confronted with your own spiritual darkness that leads you to see God's salvation in a way that brings awe and reverence and amazement. So it is a book of salvation. And the salvation will be more clearly seen when we go through the dark parts. So Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. Isaiah was commissioned by God to address primarily the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. So the nation of Israel had been split into two, the ten northern tribes known as Israel, 
the two southern tribes known as Judah. In Judah, there was a very prominent city, the most prominent city in all the world, Jerusalem. And Isaiah the prophet has been called by God to speak to Jerusalem and to speak to Judah. He will speak to Israel. He will speak to the other nations even, but he's primarily got a message for Judah, God's people who've gone astray. Isaiah, you'll see in Isaiah 1.1, we'll look at this next week, served during the span of four kings of Judah. So he comes in at the tail end of, of the first king, Uzziah. Then he goes to minister during the time of Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. So he serves during the time period of four kings. Those four kings served for about 100 years. Isaiah's portion in their reign was about 40 to 50 years. So about a 40 to 50 year ministry Isaiah had. Again, primarily concerned with the southern kingdom of Judah. Now secondly, second point for the morning. What is Isaiah's purpose for writing? Why do we need Isaiah? Why did the people at that time need Isaiah? And I've, I've read a lot of experts on Isaiah and what they've said, and it's all very helpful, but I've tried to kind of condense it down into a paragraph for you, okay? Here's Isaiah's purpose, and I think it's on the screen here. Great. As Judah has rejected God, he prepares them to be disciplined by the world's first superpower, Assyria. God will teach them through discipline, and then he will amazingly save them from final destruction. Judah will not learn from this and will still try to find their security in other nations. A second superpower, Babylon, will overtake them in the future. However, their king, God himself, will rescue his people again by serving them. He will finally be revealed as the anointed conqueror and savior of the world. You could say that's a summary of human history. That's why Isaiah writes that purpose right there. So in this book, you could say that it's divided up really into three pictures of God, three portraits of God Himself. First, God is the king, then God is the servant, and then God as the anointed conqueror. Or... You could think of the Son of God, Christ Himself, as King, Servant, Anointed Conqueror. That's where Isaiah takes us. That's how God divinely inspired the book to flow. It starts with Him as King. Now, you're in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, interestingly enough, is where Isaiah's commission happens. Now, there are a couple other prominent prophets in the Old Testament, or Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah is called into a prophetic ministry in Jeremiah chapter 1. Ezekiel is called into a prophetic ministry in Ezekiel chapter 1. Isaiah is called into a prophetic ministry in Isaiah 6. Why 6? Why don't we start Isaiah 1 with the call to his prophetic ministry? Because you need to spend five chapters to see how bad things were. And we're going to start that next week. Five chapters to show how bad things are. Now, the, five, the first five chapters of Isaiah are showing how bad things are spiritually, but economically, the nation was thriving. They were prosperous. Under the reign of their king, King Uzziah, they were thriving. But yet God's going to show us for five chapters that they weren't thriving spiritually. So, when you have a king over you, and when you are financially uh, thriving, you tend to look up to that king. I like where this guy has brought us. I've got vacation homes. I've got security. Think we're at peace. I like this guy. But, friends, kings come and go. But there is one king who's always on the throne. That's why chapter 6 starts with these words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Isaiah saw when the nation's beloved king died, he saw a king that's eternal, that sits on the throne. 
That's important for us to see. That's important for us. Kings come and go. God is always king. So this book starts out with the message that God is king. So as we look through point number three, how does Isaiah lay out his prophecy? Let's start with that. Let's start with the book of the king. So Isaiah lays out his prophecy. Really, you can kind of divide it into three parts. I mean, you can divide it different ways, but I'm going to divide it here into three parts. First, the book of the king, verses 1 to 37. Then the book of the servant, 38 to 55. And then the final, 56 to 66, the book of the anointed conqueror. But let's just look at a few passages at the idea of God's kingship early on in Isaiah. The book of the king, chapters 1 to 37. Again, I showed you in chapter 6, verse 1, that as their beloved king dies, we're introduced to the fact that there's a king that always has been, always will be. He's on the throne. And that's a good thing for us to see. Kings come and go. The Lord is always king. Then turn over to chapter 8. As Isaiah's prophecy progresses, remember I told you that the nation of Judah was at peace primarily during this time. They're financially prosperous, but something's happening to the north of them, northeast of them. There's a war machine being built. The nation of Assyria is called by not just biblical scholars, but also scholars from history. The nation of Assyria has been called the first great superpower, the first great world superpower. This nation, Assyria, is building their war machine. That term war machine, you may have heard it likened to the time when Germany was brought low after the Treaty of Versailles, after World War I, but then in between World War I and World War II, even against worldwide sanctions, Hitler started to build a war machine and built a fairly impressive military, and then started conquering and taking over. That's what Assyria could be likened to, the world's first great superpower. Look at Isaiah 8, 5 to 8. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flowed gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them waters of the river mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over its banks. So the Lord wants Isaiah the prophet to say this. Listen, you're concerned about the leader, the king of Israel, who's threatening you, Judah, You're concerned about the king of Syria, not Assyria, the king of Syria, who's a threat to you. You're concerned about that, and you're trying to form alliances, and you're trying to make yourself safe and secure, but you're not trusting in me. I'm your God. I'm your king. But you're trying to get in with human kings so that you're safe. Therefore, I'll bring a king against you the strongest king in the land. I'll bring the king of Assyria, and he will go against you, we know, to discipline you, to discipline the people of God so that they would look up and see that their only hope is in their eternal king, God himself. Don't trust in princes. Don't trust in kings. Don't trust in the politics of the day. Don't trust in any man-made thing that gives you security. Trust in God, your king. And here they're not, so he brings a mighty rushing river against them. They could have experienced the gentle flowing waters that their king offered them, but they refused the waters of Shiloh. So he's going to bring a torrent to get their attention. Now, this torrent, torrents drown people. Torrents drown nations. Assyria will start to devour nations. They go and conquer Egypt. That's quite a thing. They come up 
and start conquering other areas. They conquer the northern kingdom, Israel. They overtake Israel, the north. Now they're threatening Judah, and they start to take over parts of Judah. They take over a key city called Lachish, Lachish, however you want to say it. They take it over. Now they're on the doorsteps of Jerusalem, the place where God dwells, the place where God's people are supposed to dwell in safety. But notice what we read in 8, 7. Therefore the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise over its channels and go over all its banks. It's starting to take over, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. Picture yourself drowning. The waters reach up to the neck, but guess what? What's this book about? God is salvation. They don't drown because of Assyria. They don't drown because of the waters. The waters reach their neck, but they don't go over their head. It's a fact of human history. In 701 BC, the Assyrian Empire came against the city of Jerusalem. And guess what? They didn't defeat Jerusalem. They were overcome, overwhelmed. It's as if God is the strongest king. And that's what this book shows us. You can trust in God. You're trusting in so many political saviors, so many economic saviors. Put your trust in the king who reigns and reigns for his people. That's what this first part of the book shows us. Trust, trust. Go to Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32, 5 to 6. Isaiah 32, I said 5 to 6. Look at 32, 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Judah is so concerned about so many kings. I mean, they're reading Foreign Policy magazine. They're watching Fox News. They're so concerned about all the nations and what they're doing. And in 32, 1, he says, listen, a king will reign in righteousness. All of these kings are wicked kings. There is one coming that will reign in righteousness. Again, this is what God's people need to hear in the book of the king. Now turn over to 37. 37 and 38 are kind of a mountain peak in the book of Isaiah. This is the account where the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, fails and can't conquer Jerusalem. I mean, friends, Jerusalem isn't the strongest city compared to other cities that this king has conquered. He's been moving his way across the map, taking over this area, that area, Egypt, Israel, much of Judah, but then he comes to Jerusalem, a relatively small city, and can't penetrate it. Again, you can find this in world history, not just in biblical history. You can see the accounts of this. 37, 33. Listen to this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. They won't be able to penetrate the walls. This is God saying this before it happened. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. He's going to come, and then he's going to go. He's not going to come and stay and conquer, declares the Lord. Verse 35, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. He made a promise. Verse 36, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. 
And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach his god, Adramelech and Sherezer his sons struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esaradon his son reigned in his place. Kings, even the world's most powerful kings, come and go. The Lord is always on his throne. And the Lord protects his people. He may use evil to discipline them, but the Lord is the one that says, stop, no more. The book of the king, God saves. It's so fascinating. You can, you can go to museums around the world and see evidence of Assyria's empire and even evidences of their failed attempts to conquer Jerusalem. It's fascinating. What we're reading is part of world history and God's in charge of it. He knows what he's doing. God is the king. Well, <clears throat> there's a second part to this book. It's the book of the servant, chapters 38 to 55. Now, think about doing a puzzle. Think about doing a puzzle when you don't have the picture to look at, okay? So, you don't have the box. I mean, what a huge tragedy that would be. You just got to figure this thing out on your own. You start to assemble it, and you've gone through chapters 1 through 38. You've done some work in this, and ah, this is a picture of a king. But then in chapters 38 through 55, you spend more time assembling this puzzle, and you see, wait, he's not just a king. This king is actually a servant. Kings aren't servants. Kings are in charge. Kings are served, but not God the king. God the king is actually a servant as well. And you see that in verses 38, or chapter 38 to 55. Look at chapter 39. Again, I told you this mountain peak in the book, 37 and 38, God saves Jerusalem from the Assyrian army, from the Assyrian king. Certainly, Judah's going to say, praise the Lord. We now will never trust in anything again. We will only trust in our Lord. Isaiah, you can end your book right here. We're good. Well, that doesn't happen. They still are fearful and start to depend on other nations. So in 39, 5 to 6, we get this prophecy. After this high point, after this great moment of salvation, we get this in 39, 5 to 6. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Babylon wasn't yet a world superpower or the world superpower. They would become the superpower. They would take over for Assyria and they would conquer Jerusalem. They would take away and destroy the temple. They would take away people from God's land that he had placed them in. They will take them away because, again, they would not trust in God, their king. So, we're told right away in the second part of the book, they're going to be troubled again by another nation. And this nation actually will take them into exile, Babylon. But what's this book about? Yahweh is salvation. So, in chapter 40, he calls them to be comforted by the salvation he offers. 40 verse 1. He's just prophesied that Babylon's going to rise against them. And then he says this, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now, I want to point out the obvious. Jerusalem doesn't deserve the tender words of God. But verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I I've saved them. See what I did for Assyria. Tell them to trust in me. This God is speaking tenderly to his children. They just simply need to listen and to trust him. 
Well, we continue on. 40, verse 10. Go down to 40:10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. He's still the king. I, I told you he's a servant. He's still the king, though. He hasn't ceased being king to become a servant. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. The king's shepherd-like. The king serves little lambs. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The strong king who bears his arms gently carries the lambs. Friends, that's who God is still for His people today. That's who He is for us. We need this book. One of the shocking things to me that God reveals in His Word is that God serves me and God serves you. You can see this in the Gospel of Luke. The prophecy about the second coming says that the bridegroom bridegroom will come again And guess what the bridegroom does when he comes? He starts serving his people. Jesus is going to come again. And for some reason, he's going to come and serve you and he's going to come and serve me. That's shocking to me. We serve him. That should be the order. But this is who God is a strong king who serves his people. Go to chapter 42. This is so good. Can't wait to get here. But we'll taste the beef taquito right now. (laughs) Just a little taste here. Behold my servant, whom I uphold. God is sending a servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. There's something about... God and the servant he sends, they they have this relationship with one another. We know him to be the son of God himself. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Oh man, he must be a strong king. Yes, you're right, he is. He He must be loud and ostentatious and dominate. Well, hold on a second. Verse two, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. Or make it heard in the street. This servant of God is not ostentatious. He's not self-promoting like the kings of the earth are. He's not loud. He's not aggressive. He's not dominating, tyrannical. No. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. God who is king cares about bruised reeds. That's people. That's us. He won't discard the bruised reed. Break it. And a faintly burning wick. Lord, I don't know that I have much more left. I just have a a tiny little smoldering piece left in me. I'm depleted. A faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He will not put out. Friends, that's who God is. He's strong, he bears his arm, and yet he also serves and cares for the weak. His people in trouble, he pays attention. His people who feel like they've got nothing left, he blows and the flame reignites. That's who our God is. The bruised reed he will not break. The smoldering wick he will not quench. This king is also a gentle servant. And then turn to 53. You know this chapter. Let me just read 10 to 12. Isaiah 53, 10 to 12. And remember... In 42, the heart of God, the heart of the Lord delighted in in His servant. The heart of the Lord gave us His servant. We know that this is Jesus. He, He 
delighted in his son, gave his son. Now look at 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, his own beloved son, his own beloved servant. And he's put him to grief. Literally, he's made him sick. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering and he shall prolong his days. So wait a second. This servant given by God is going to suffer, be sickened, even be destroyed. But he's going to see the people that come after him. How in the world does that work? Because he's going to rise from the dead. He's going to see his offspring. He's going to see what comes after him. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Evidently, his death wasn't the end of the story. His suffering wasn't the end. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He'll go through an anguish, and that will lead to a reward, and he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is the picture of the resurrected Jesus and the resurrected us enjoying all that God's given us together. So this servant dies and then rises again. And here, I think, is Isaiah kind of turning turning to the third part of the book to show that he's not just the suffering servant, he's also going to be the anointed conqueror that he's going to share all of that benefit with us one day. That's what's happening here. But he's a servant who poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Do you know that the New Testament still says that he's making intercession for us? Hebrews 7, Revelation 12, he still makes intercession for us. Jesus Christ is still serving us. He hasn't stopped being king. Now we're introduced to the fact that he's servant. And we know that one day all the world will know that he's the anointed conqueror. He's the one eternal king that you can't touch. He's in control of everything. He will judge his enemies. He will save his people. He's the king. He's the servant. He's the anointed one. He's the final king. Kings come and go. Jesus Christ reigns forever. This is what Isaiah teaches us. Let's look finally at the third part, the book of the anointed conqueror, 56 to 66. The anointed conqueror will be shown in these chapters to gather in his people, gather in his chosen people, his chosen nation, and along with them, he gathers in his chosen from also the Gentile nations. So this is not just that God is the Savior of Judah, which he is, but he also becomes the Savior of the nations. It's as if he's not just a localized king. Assyria has their king. Egypt has their king. Israel has their king. Judah has their king. When it comes to King Jesus, he's the king over all the kings. And he gathers in his own people, the remnant of Judah, and he gathers in people from all around the nations. That's us. That's the plan of human history. The anointed conqueror is gathering in his people from all over the world. The Lord will save Israel. He'll extend salvation to the nations and destroy his enemies and bring all of his people home. That's where human history is going. 56, 1 to 5, there is salvation available for the foreigners. Now listen, in the book of Isaiah, the world leaders, the world is so often portrayed as the enemies of God's people. But among the enemies of God's people, God is going to redeem people from those nations. He's going to go into places like Assyria and say, I'm going to take you and bring you home as my child. I'm going to go to Egypt. 
I'm going to go to Italy. I'm going to go to Nicaragua. I'm going to go to the United States and bring people home to be my family. This is what Isaiah teaches us. Isaiah 56, 1 to 5, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. Let not the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuchs say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and that, that shall not be cut off. The Lord is going to save people from all over the world. That's why I love in the Old Testament, the people of God are called a number of things. Nation of Israel, Judah, they're called a number of things. They're called a holy nation. They're called a royal priesthood. They're called chosen. They're called a people for God's own possession. After Christ comes, dies, rises again, ascends to the right hand of the Father, He sends His apostles out, and they start going and telling the Gentiles that there's a Savior of the world. Trust Him. And so one of Jesus' apostles, Peter, writes to Gentile believers, now believers from among the nations in the Roman Empire, and you know what He calls them? A holy nation, people chosen by God, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. God has united Jew and Gentile under His Son. This is the plan of world history. This is where the world is going. This is why we're here knowing Christ, so the people outside of these walls can understand that there is a King of the world, and He makes salvation possible. Go over to 65. Wrapping up now. 65. 1 to 2, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. So Israel is known as the nation that was called by His name. Even the people of Judah called by His name. He called them. I'm going to be, I'm going to set you apart. But I'm also going to be sought by people who didn't think to call me. They had the king of Assyria as their king. They had the king of Egypt as their king. They had the president of the United States as their leader. I'm going to be known by more than just Israel. Verse 2, I spread out my hands all day to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens, making offerings on bricks. This is part of where you see God's people largely rejected him. So he will save Judah. He'll save a remnant of Judah because many rejected him, but he will save a remnant of Judah. Many have rejected him, and he will turn to the nations and bring in a remnant from the nations as well. Verse 11, go down to verse 11. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups mixed of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight. So this is, at the end of the book, this great call. I've saved my people, but some still are not listening to me. They're doing their own thing. I've offered salvation. I've offered myself as king. I've offered my servant to serve you, to die for you. I'm the anointed conqueror, yet still people are refusing. Don't refuse. And then he says this in 13, which is very appropriate for us today partaking of the Lord's table. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, look, my servants shall eat, but the one who rejects God, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. So yes, there is an invitation for the nations, but for the one that rejects, there's judgment. 
while the ones who've responded to his salvation eat, drink, and rejoice. 65.17, this anointed conqueror is going to reign over his new people, and he's going to bring about a new heavens and a new earth, one where righteousness dwells. This is where human history is going. 65.17, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Do you know how staggering (laughs) those words right there are? Go outside, look at Thumb Butte. It's going to be redone. Go, Go look at Las Vegas. Go look at New York City. Go look at Rome. Go look at Nigeria. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth that isn't affected by the curse anymore. This anointed conqueror is going to have a new place to reign with his new people. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. That's, that's good to know because <laughs> those former things are pretty dark. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. One of the things I love about the book of Isaiah is it gives you the idea that when God saves a people, they receive joy and gladness. Let me say to those of you who are young people in here, the lie that the world is going to tell you is that if you follow Christ, you're going to miss out. No, you need the book of Isaiah. When God's people are saved by him, there is a joy and a gladness. There's life given to them. We need to know that. Finally, 66, 1 to 2. Thus says the Lord. He's the anointed conqueror. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. He reigns. What is the house that you had built for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. He's in charge of human history, and he sits enthroned over human history. And then this, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I wonder if you're just so frustrated trying to get ahead, trying to get ahead financially, trying to show how acceptable you should be trying to please other people in your Bible study, in your church, at your workplace, in this world, trying to get likes, just just trying, trying, trying. The God of the universe says, I'll look after in a very caring way, in a very shepherding way, the one who's simply humble and contrite. Blessed are those who mourn. All throughout the book of Isaiah, we're going to see this. There's a special attention paid for the smoldering wick, the bruised reed. God, the strong, powerful king, looks at the ones suffering who cry out to him and just say, God, I can't do it anymore. I need you to help. And from his enthroned position, he looks down and brings his lambs close to him. This is who God is, and we need to know more about this. So, fourth and final point, how should we pray at the beginning of a study of Isaiah? I'm going to give some prayer prompts up on the screen. I think these are good things to pray about as we go through this study. I'm encouraging you to, um, if you have to miss traveling, sick, whatever it may be, try to listen to it. The, the guys do a great job. D- Dave does a great job and posts the sermons like same day after they're done. So please listen, follow along, stay understanding the flow of this book. But as you do that, first, ask the king to give you greater obedience to him. The tragedy of chapters 1 through 36, really, is that God is king of his people. He's been good to them. But we'll see this next week. In chapter 1, it says, uses this word, that they've despised him. 
Some of you may claim to be believers, but if we're honest, you're really angry with God right now. I hope His gracious words will work in your heart to give you greater obedience and trust and love for Him, and that despising will turn to delight. You need this book. Second, ask the shepherd to help you appreciate his gentle care of you. Some of you know that God's king. You know that he will one day be the anointed conqueror. You know that he bears his arm. But you don't often think of him as shepherd enough. He's a shepherd for his people. You know that your wick is about to go out, but what you don't know is that he doesn't extinguish smoldering wicks. God, God is a gentle God. Jesus Christ cares for His lambs, His suffering lambs, His lambs that have chosen to go out of the fold for a time, stupidly enough. He goes out, finds them, and brings them home. And some of you need to know that about God. I was just looking at this this morning and just But I'm not the only one that needs to hear this. (laughs) Just listen to chapter 43, verse 4. Now, I told you, he's saying this not to Judah when they're at their best. Oh, man, they're just offering this. Their sacrifices rightly with the right frame of mind. They're treating one another well. They're caring for the impoverished among them. They're just doing so well. They don't care about what's going on in the other nations. They trust me, their king. They're doing so well, so I'm going to speak tender words to them. No, they're not. They're weak. They're still not trusting him like they should. And he says this, you're precious in my eyes. That's in the Bible, friend. God's saying this to his people. You are precious in my eyes and honored. And then God says this, and I love you. I don't think I'm the only one that needs to hear that. This is what God says to His people that are very often the opposite of awesome. You're precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. So ask the Lord to shep- the, ask the shepherd to help you appreciate His gentle care of you. Third, ask the anointed conqueror to come and extend His joyful rule <laughs> in your homes in Prescott, at your workplaces, in this world, come Lord Jesus. Ask the Lord, please be praying now more than ever for the second coming. A new heavens and a new earth where His joyful rule is what we experience. Ask the Lord for that. Ask God, fourthly, to give you a heart for the nations, not just anger for the nations. Some of you have anger for the nations understand why, the sin that they propagate, what they do, but ask the Lord to give you a heart for the nations. The Lord will judge the nations. He says that very clearly in this book, but He will also go and save nations, save people from among the nations. What we are doing here as a new covenant people of God is an effort to reach those around us and to reach the nations. This is the heart of God. So often, for some reason, we get saved, and here in America, we start to buy into the American dream, and and we go to churches so that we can find out what they're going to give me. We pray to God so that He can give me more stuff. I hope the Lord does this for me. And He does care. He does shepherd. He does provide. But we're here on a mission to go and see the nations reached for the glory of Christ. So ask God to give you more of His heart here. Next, ask God, and this is important the way I'm phrasing this, okay? Ask God to convict you of sin while not forgetting that He was pierced for your transgressions and crushed for your iniquities. So basically I'm saying, read this book as a new covenant believer. 
See, starting next week, we're going to do a spiritual checkup. And if you're not careful, you're going to read these passages like an, like an old covenant believer without any hope. I'm horrible. I have been despising the Lord. I have not, I have gone through the motions of worshiping Him. I have not cared for other people. Woe is me. I'm convicted. I go out of here. I guess that's what God wants. Well, that's a start, but he wants, what He wants is for you to look at His servant son who died in your place and to believe in Him and to recognize that He brings those that look to His son, they, He brings them home. You're forgiven. You, are, you do not have your sins held over you. You still sin. He wants to shepherd you and guide you. The way they sinned, they're just like us. They're still they're people. We're people. We look a lot like Judah. But he was pointing them to a future salvation. We look back at that salvation and say, I know who the Savior is. He came 2,000 years ago, born in Bethlehem, lived in Nazareth, then went to Galilee, then communicated to the world that he was the Savior. I believe in him. I know that my sin is dealt with. Read Isaiah as a new covenant believer. Listen, we have the same weaknesses as the people of Judah. We're going to go through chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, and you're going to see yourself in some of those places. But we've got advantages that they didn't have. We know now in bodily form who the Savior is and what He was like. We know God because He has made Him known. And guess what? We've got more ability than they had. They didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Guess what we've been giving? We've been given God inside of us. We are not to read this as Old Covenant believers. We read about the Old Covenant believers and say, oh, I see some similarities here. Lord, I'm bringing that to you. But I'm a New Covenant believer. I have the Holy Spirit. I have your Son who forgives me. I've got advantages here. So be convicted of sin while not forgetting that He was pierced for your transgressions and crushed for your iniquities. You are part of the New Covenant people of God. And that needs to mean something to us. So here's our plan. I'll wrap up with this. This is a long appetizer. All right. <laughs> We're going to study, Lord willing, the book of the King, 1 to 37, throughout this next semester, through the end of May, maybe the first week in June. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Uh, probably the first week in June. So these are available on the welcome table outside. This is the preaching schedule. You can't read it. It doesn't say it there, but there is a giant Lord willing over this uh, plan, Okay. <laughs> We're not presuming that on March 3, we're definitely going to do this. Well, we hope to do this on March 3, but giant Lord willing, okay? But here's the plan, to go through 1 through 37 through the end of May, early part of June. So that's roughly going to be, I think, about two chapters a week as we go through this. Sometimes it'll be one, sometimes less than one. Sometimes, if you look at March 17... It'll be Isaiah 13 to 19. And you think, okay, we'll cancel our lunch plans. Uh, <clears throat> obviously, that will be more overview. I will not drill into every single verse through Isaiah 66, but I do want to give you the flavor of where this is going. So we will get further down than maybe we've ever been before, but we won't stop forever and look at each flower, although we wish we could. So, just pay attention for changes of speeds, different speeds, but that's kind of our plan. Uh, and then we'll break in the summer for a little bit to do something else, and then Lord willing, come back and finish the book. So, that's our plan. Um, I've got more here, but we must stop. Okay. Uh, next week, Isaiah chapter 1. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank You for giving us a clearer view of who you are in this prophecy. You're king. You're also a servant. 
Lord Jesus, and you're also the coming anointed conqueror. We need to see all three of those aspects of your rule and who you are. So, Father, teach us over the next number of weeks and months to appreciate you, to worship you, and to trust in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.